you who don't know, the, the class is taped and audios are put on the church website. So if you ever miss a class, you can go on the home page for St. Francis, go to watch and listen, click under that, and there will be a section for this class. And I, I'm going to have to make a distinction in a minute. We've been doing a class called Literature is Prophecy. That's not what we're doing with this, and I'll, and I'll explain that in a minute. But if you go to the website, watch and listen, um, Catholic and Protestant Souls, you'll find the audios of the class there. So if you miss a class, you can pick it up. I'm going to leave you for, I, I, I'm not sure that it's working. Yep. Okay, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and um, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass. For your presence with us, you ask us to thank you always and everywhere. That means um, through struggles, um, no matter how hard they are, something in us you've asked to be thankful. We know that because you ask us to your cross, um, um, knowing that whatever our difficulties, there's always, we know that you are doing something with us, even if we can't see it, that's our faith. I ask a special blessing on all of us, those um, who are carrying extra burdens, um, and for those of us who are doing this work together in this class, strengthen us in our efforts to be open, to learn, most especially now about our faith. Um, um, increase in us a spirit of humility and openness to you, um, a greater courage in what we learn to take it out to the world, um, to make you real. Um, so that people know you through us, know your kingdom more closely by what we do. We ask this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, let's see. Before everybody came, I just put out the packet that's that consists mostly of historical notes. So you've got some background information in those packets. I also put out a stack of the study guides, Milton's study guide. It's very, very thorough. Um, if any of you have not read Milton before, um, he's not easy to read. I, I mean, I, I, there's nothing else to say. Dante is absolutely lucid, simple. I wanted to start with Milton because I wanted to finish with Dante because I, I think there's more for us to learn, certainly about our faith from him. Um, so the hard part is ahead of us right now. You're, you're going to be dealing with a text that is very, very difficult. Milton's language is not easy at all. He, he mastered seven or eight languages. And the sixth syntax that he brings to English reflects different linguistic structures from his other languages. So it's just not easy. It's not an easy language to read. The, the story behind it and the theology, I think, is somewhat simple. What we're going to find when we do Dante is just the opposite. Dante's language is absolutely simple. A sixth grader could read it, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating at all. 
it's so simple. But the wisdom behind Dante's poem is extraordinary. It's complex and dense and rich and not simple at all. And a lot of details to hold on. So when we get to Dante, it'll be a, a very different kind of experience. It'll be easy to read, um, but we'll, we'll be constantly asked to think a lot about things. Uh, there's a lot going on in Dante's world. So you have those two books, um, Paradise Lost, The Commedia. Um, I've given this a lot of thought, <laughs> and against my wife's better judgment. Um, we're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to add a book after we do um, Paradise Lost. We're going to do Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that book. Next to, next to um, Aquinas's Summa, it, it's one of the most important, maybe next to the Summa, the greatest, most important work, the, theological work in the Middle Ages. It's very small, it's not scholastic, it's not a heavy um, conceptual um, you know, oriented book. It's a story, it, it, it's an exchange that takes place between Boethius and lady philosophy. Boethius, deeply Catholic in his faith, is in jail for something he didn't do, grieving um, because he's being treated badly, and he's got this question, why God allows um, bad things to happen to good people? It's the question of Job, basically, <laughs> except for a Christian. <laughs> I've been teaching literature here for the last three years, this course on literature's prophecy. Literature's been the one thing that has brought us together. Lady Philosophy comes to, um, to Boethius and says, stop crying, stop your whining. The problem with you is that you read too much poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she gives these um, philosophic answers to these questions, why God allows evil to good people and why he allows um, evil people to be rewarded. And it ends on a discussion of predestination, which is going to be very important to the Reformation thinkers. Those of you who know Calvin, you know that it was absolutely crucial to what he did. So it, um, it's, it's philosophic and it speaks to literature directly, but it speaks to questions of our faith too. So. I'm going to order that, and I think what we'll do is, after we finish um, Paradise Lost, I think we're going to have a movie. I'll come to that in a second. Come on in, find a... There's seats here, and there are seats. Um, we'll do Consolation of Philosophy and probably take a break. I don't know where we'll be by then. And then we'll start Dante. And the... The tentative plan right now, the loose guideline that I'm following is this. I'm going to allow one week for two books for Milton. So I'm going to ask you to do two books each week. That may be a little bit heavy. Um, we're, not going to, we're not going to read Milton the way we would in graduate school or an undergraduate program. The, the, the purposes are different. I can't turn when we do, When we do Dante, um, we will slow down because there's a lot going on in Dante. Um, I, I can't remember what the schedule is now, but we'll probably spend close to a month on the Inferno and, and a month on the Purgatorio and then a month on the Paradiso. Paradiso is very intellectual. It's not going to be easy to read, um, but it's an extraordinary work. So anyway, we'll spend a much longer time on Dante than we, we will on Milton. So. When that's over, um, 
I'm going to return to doing what I usually do. This is going to be a break. I, I have to get to this in a second. We're going to go back to the literature's prophecy group. Um, for those of you who don't know, for the last couple of years, um, I've been doing this work called Literature's Prophecy. And the whole point of it is to, is to read literature to see if we could find Christ, where ordinary, ordinarily people don't see him. We went back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the great pagan epics, to get us up to Dante. We've done Dante with this group. And then went forward to Shakespeare, um, Melville, Moby Dick, Faulkner. Um, I think we ended on C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces. The whole point of all of that literature was to show that Christ was actually more present in our world than we very often allow. I'm, I'm Just to give a brief example, and I know this may not mean much to those of you who have not read the ancient epics, but those of you who have know it now. Um, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, you know that every one of those books ends with a, what I'm calling a parousia action. The parousia is our term in the church for the second coming. The parousia, the second coming. Um, Christ will return in judgment. It'll be a reckoning. And when he returns, it will be a return in terror, gladness, dread, all of it. People will be facing judgment. That's our term for the Prusia. That's it's, it's not a literary term. When you read each one of those books, it's this is these are pagan writers. These are pagan poets. They're not Christian. They didn't know anything about Christ. Um, there's some suspicion that Virgil may have read the Old Testament be because what happens in Aeneid so lines up with what happens in Genesis, the settling of the tribes, the founding of Israel, and all of that. When you read those ancient epics, what you discover is every one of them ends with a Prusia action. Achilles drops out of the war, Odysseus is away for 20 years from home, and Aeneas is struggling to found Rome. This is all pointing to, to, to Roman Catholicism in an amazing way. Um, Achilles returns to the war and brings judgment. When he returns to the war, the, the word to describe it in the Greek is a psychomachia. The gods come down, the humans, the, the war resumes, and there's this radical change, and nobody can defeat him. He's bringing that war, that war to an end. And, and if you've read the book, you know it. it. It starts in the ninth and a half year of the war, and there's no indication that that war will end. He brings that war to an end. Odysseus comes home, for those of you who haven't read the, or the Odyssey, you know, he comes home to deal with a hundred suitors and brings a judgment on them. He kills all the maidservants for their betrayals and all the suitors. Aeneas returns to Rome. It's his, it's his home from a past before a time that he knew. So he's returning home in a strange way to his beginnings that he didn't know about. And he brings a judgment. He brings that word, all the civil wars in Italy to an end which is the precondition for the founding of Rome. So every one of those books ends with a parousia. How, how did they do that? Where did that come from? So that's what we did. I mean, we went back to the ancient epics and then moved forward into a Christian world to Dante and Shakespeare and Melville and Faulkner. For those, just to give you some hint here, I know this is a little bit off the topic, but in one sense it's not. Um, for those of you who've read Moby Dick, you know that Moby Dick begins, call me Ishmael. Ishmael's the outcast one. Remember, he's the one that Sarah sends off. Remember when um, she wants to have a child, and, or, 
and asks um, Hagar to, to sleep with Abraham so they can have a child. And once the child's born, she's so envious that, you know, that it's not her child that she sends Ishmael out. God protects him. Um, we, we know that he's under God's protection. Moby Dick, I believe, is Melville's response to a Protestant crisis, midnight Christian crisis, 19th century, largely Protestant. Ishmael's the outcast one. Faulkner loved that book. He said he wished he'd written Moby Dick. He wrote a book in the middle of his life called Go Down Moses. The hero of that book is Ike, chosen one. In the north, in the south, we've got the two greatest poets of America, Melville, 19th century, Faulkner, our time, dealing with biblical themes. How many people know that? You know? They're not going to get it at the university today. You know anything about what's going on at the university today. But there it is. You know, these things are very much on their mind. So, um, so one of the things that we were doing in these works was trying to find God, Christ, where ordinarily we don't see him. Um, we're not going to do that here, although it's, it's, it's going to happen without even my going at it, because both of these poets are Christian Explicitly Christian. Milton's writing it as Christian. He's going he's he's to do something that in his mind is radically changing the whole epic tradition because up to him, they were all pagan epics. He, he, he deals with a, with a biblical theme, the fall, the loss of the garden. And Dante's going to pick it up too as, in a, as a Christian. So those are our two works. Um, we'll do Boethius between... Um, um, when we finish Milton, Paradise Lost, I thought we had a, we, we've, had, we've tried to end each year with a dinner. It's been a wonderful time. Um, um, I thought this year, we, or yeah, this season after we finish Milton, we could have a dinner, or no, a movie. Sorry, a movie. Maybe, yeah, and a dinner, because we usually have a dinner when we do it. Have any of you seen the movie A Man for All Season? Yes, my Yeah, do you? It's really appropriate because it, it, it speaks to all the things that are so much a part of Milton's life. The Reformation is um, heated. Um, it's the beginning of the modern world. Uh, it's, the, it's the background for Milton's work. So it's a short movie. It's a, it's a wonderful movie in lots of ways, and it speaks to so many of the things that we're doing. So we thought we'd have an evening. And, um, a potluck and watch a movie together and a good way to bring Milton to an end and then start Dante. And what I'd like to do when we're done with Dante is have another movie, but I'm going to surprise everybody. You may not want to see me again afterwards either, but I'm, I'm not going to tell you what the movie is, but I'll tell you this, it's, <laughs> this may keep you away, it's subtitled. If that doesn't give away, it, it's not a small thing for me. Um, we watch a lot of foreign movies because Suzanne and I are, are converts, and the Catholic faith for me is a serious thing. And by Catholicism, in my own mind, it means the whole world. So we watch lots of foreign movies. We don't understand the original tongue, but it means we watch a good number of movies with subtitles. This this isn't in English, so but it's an extraordinary, extraordinary movie. I, otherwise, I wouldn't suggest it. But what I'd like to do at the end of our time together is watch this movie and surprise you. So, um, 
you've been given warning if you don't show up that night. You, um, I'll, I'll know why. I think that's it in terms of class business. Have I forgotten anything? Don't. Friday. Right, sorry? Friday. What about them? Class Though, yeah, those of you who can't make the Monday evenings, I'm giving the same class twice a week, so Monday morning. It's just trying to reach a larger group, so <coughs> if any of you can't make it. Um, I, I'm going to talk with John. Are you all, this is too crowded, yeah? Mm -hmm. Are you guys okay? It's too crowded, yeah? No. I'm going to ask John if we, if we can't find a larger space that's, that's a little bit less crowded. Um, that's it. Oh, I knew. I knew there was something. Do you have, did you hand out the poems, Don? Yeah. Do you have a copy of Wind Hover? This, <laughs> um, I'm going to do with this group what we've been doing in the Lit is Prophecy. We start every class with a lyric poem. Until the end of the season, it was all short lyrics. At the end of the year, <laughs> we did T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. If any of you know the Four Quartets, you know that they're not short by any means. It's, it was a long poem. Because, because he's probably the most extraordinary poet of the 20th century. So we did the quartets, which to me is an amazing work. Don't worry, we're not going to do the quartets here. But, but I'd like to do a short lyric to start every class for this reason, because my own, my own belief, right or wrong, is that I don't think we see Christ very well. Um, we don't see him often in the most ordinary things in front of us. We come to church to see him, but I'm not sure that we see him all day long, every day. Every one of the lyric poems has to do with a moment, some ordinary moment in which Christ is made visible. The poem that I'm gonna do next week is called Supernatural Love. It's by a modern American um, poet, um, Gertrude Schnackenberg. It's called Supernatural Love. It's about a little four-year-old. This is um, the poet recalling a moment when she was four years old. She's stitching the word beloved on one of those little samplers you know, where you stitch a pattern out, the word beloved. Her father is aware that um, She's fascinated with the word carnations, and he can't figure out why. He's an intellectual. <laughs> that should be the answer. He's in his head. She's a four-year-old. She's, she's fascinated with this word. He goes to the dictionary and looks up the meaning, and while he does, his daughter pricks her finger. That's it. She calls out and goes, Daddy, Daddy, and he comes. That's the poem. That's it. Nothing there. Christ is everywhere in it. But to see that, we have to read it. But that's the sort of thing you know, that I'm going to do. So I'm going to start every class with a short lyric, two reasons. One is because it helps us to see what, po what I think what poets see that most people don't. It's the kind of knowledge that poetry gives us. Um, they're going to reveal Christ in some way, number one. And number two is because lyrics um, make more apparent the musical quality of literature. They're all lyrics. You can hear it. We're going to be reading poems that were written in verse. And most people intellectualize the ideas and don't experience the music. I think that's a mistake. 
the, one of the effects of music and poetry is that it quiets the critical <coughs> mind. It opens our hearts. It makes us capable of feeling things that we won't get when we're reading ideas. And ideas were in our heads. Poets are speaking to the whole person, our intellects, our hearts. And I want to try to keep that alive in a, in a world, I think, in which it's fading. So we're going to do a short lyric so you can hear the music and see what the poet's showing us about Christ. So we'll start each time together with a short lyric, and then we'll pick up Milton. Um, so <clears throat> let me do that, and then we'll start on <laughs> why we've come here. Um, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> some trepidation here. The Wind Hover. Does everybody have a copy? Gerard Manley Hopkins was an English poet who lived during the Tractarian Movement. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It was a movement in England that, um, that came about because so many high Anglican, high Christians of the high church in England were upset at what they thought was a Christianity that was becoming too lax. So they got together and started writing these tracts to try to toughen up the Anglican church because they thought it was failing. And it was during that period that so many of those men who were Anglican Protestants, when they started reading back in history to answer the problems of their time, discovered that the problems weren't with um, what they thought at that time. The problems were in the Protestant religion itself. And it led to massive conversions. John Henry Newman came out of that movement. So did Hopkins. Hopkins was a priest. Um, who converted. Um, he left his family. I mean, there was a, as you can imagine, just a, a horrible um, falling out between him and his dad because he left what his father thought was the true religion and, and joined the Catholic Church. Um, in the early part of his career, he writes a kind of poetry that really is revolutionary. It's, a, it's just a very different kind of poetry. He, he's trying to do something to recover the health of language again at a time when he thought language was being lost. Um, it's, it's powers, certainly it's poetic powers. Um, early on in his life he reached a point where he was so committed to his faith that he thought about burning all of his poems. He, he, felt, he felt as if he were doing a disservice um, to his faith. Seriously thought about burning them. Um, one of his greatest friends, Robert Bridges, was a poet as well, one of the major poets in the 19th century was a good friend, helped him not to do that, encouraged him to keep writing. This is one of his poems. On the back, Kingfishers Catch Fire. We're not going to do that tonight, but sometime in the next few weeks we'll read that as well. So, When we've done poems in this setting, I've always asked everybody to read the poems at home. Um, and I, I push hard on everybody to read them aloud because poems should be read aloud. You have to hear them. But one of the troubles with our age is we become so Gnostic, we, we're in thoughts in our heads all the time. We listen to people on the phone, there's no body there, it's a voice. We go on the tube and see images, there's no body. Increasingly, we're living in a Gnostic world. The body's been taken out of everything. That's absolutely contrary to our faith. Theology of the body is not an accident. The timing of that to me is so perfect. Um, Poetry is meant to be heard. There's a musical aspect to it. We have to hear it. So 
I'd like to just encourage you when you go home, read these, read them out loud to each other. They should be read. We should hear it. It's, they're wonderful things to read. Um, so next week you're going to be in for something. I cannot read Supernatural Love and get through it. See if I can get through it this week. I don't know. Or next week, we'll see. Okay. Gerard Manny Hopkins, the wind brother. Just to help you, because the language is so difficult, it's written in what's called an Italian sonnet. It's got an octave, eight lines, um, that, that have a rhyme pattern, and a sestet. Traditionally, the octave presents an experience, an immediate experience, just as it was. The sestet is a reflection back on it. The mind is casting back, thinking about it. Which is exactly what happens in our life all the time. Yeah, We're not animals. We don't just engage our world with senses. We reflect on our experiences all the time. That's a natural part of who we are as humans. So. The octave recalls a moment earlier in the day when he saw this bird in the sky, this wind hover. And it was at dawn when the sun was rising. When he looked at the bird, he associates the bird with the sun rising and he, 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 he sees it in terms of an analogy with the kingdom, the, the prince, Christ, the Lord, the rising of the sun, the light coming. And then he describes the sweep of the bird, and if you, you know onomatopoeia, it means the, the words actually imitate the sound. He, he's trying to create the feeling, the sensation of being with the bird in the flight. All the images describe the bird in, in terms that are religious or sacramental. And then he will come to this moment, and if you watch the movements of the line, the lines keep running over, it's called a run-on, and then suddenly at one point, the first word of the line will stop abruptly. That, that's more than unusual in poetry. And you'll see why. Because at that moment when he looks at the birds, he sees the, the wind hover stop for a moment as if for a moment he masters the wind and stops. And in that moment he describes a buckling taking place. A buckling. Now buckling, remember, has two words, two meanings. It means to pull together to buckle together things. It also means to collapse, to buckle. Because in that moment, he sees um, Christ in the bird. Okay? And then he reflects on it, and he'll say, no wonder, it's everywhere. If you, look, if you watch a farmer plowing his land, he starts with this sticky, gooey, clay earth. He plows it, and eventually that, that sticky, Clay earth is turned into cilium. It shines because it's so worked over. And he describes a fire going out. And right at the moment when the fire is at its height, it, it, but, you know, when it's raging, it's a different kind of fire. But when it's about to go out, there's this, be this vermilion beauty that the fire gives off. And both of those are images of Christ and the crucifixion. Okay, so <coughs> that should make it a little bit easier. Okay. I've not been at this for three months and I'm feeling really <laughs> out of shape. Okay, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Wind Tower, To Christ Our Lord. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, 
dappled dawn drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air and striding high there how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy then off off forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind my heart in hiding stirred for a bird the achieve of the mastery of the thing Brute beauty and valor and act, O air pride, plume here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down cillion shine, and blue bleak embers, amadir, fall, gall themselves, and gash, gold vermilion. Stunning book. Does everybody see it? I don't want to take time because that's not our purpose. I just want you to experience. Does everybody see it? He sees Christ and the bird in that moment of buckling. I mean, how many? Well, here, let me put it. Let me go at this differently. If Christ is the logos, that's our faith. The Protestant believe nature's corrupt. Basically, it's depraved. We don't. We believe that nature's. Benedict, by the way, spoke to this in, in his address in Regensburg. I don't know if you're familiar with that address when he's meeting with an Islamic and fundamentalist world and, and saying that one of the things that the modern world has lost is the sense of the logos, the word. If Christ made everything, if he's the means of creation, then he should be present everywhere. We should be seen in somewhere. Here, in this poem, Hopkins sees... This is, well, here, put it this way. Could, could somebody who's Protestant have written this poem? Could somebody who's Islamic have written this poem? I don't think so. This is a Catholic priest. Um, he sees Christ in the bird at that moment when he masters the wind. It's like he surmounts it, holds himself, buckles all of those things together, valor, air, act, pride, pride plume, here, buckle, and the fire that breaks from the dead. And notice he's frightened. It's For him to see that is terrifying because um, the danger to himself in seeing those things. Anyway, he, he sees Christ there, and when he reflects back on him, he realizes there's no wonder to this. He's there in the work of a farmer, plodding. How many people value the plodding of laborers today? Uh, Hopkins does. And then he's there watching this fire go out and seeing some traces of Christ. And it's interesting because it's at, right at that moment when the fire starts to go out. You know, it's when the, when the coals are radiant with that light. You know, they give off this beautiful light. So, so um, there's Christ in a bird, <laughs> a bird, a farmer, and, uh, and, and a fire. Okay. Any comments quickly on this? We've got to go on, but I'm glad to take a minute. Anybody wants to? Yeah, I'm going to tell my class Saturday because what you said was particularly wonderful because you said Christ is Logos, which means everywhere, constantly, and it's the constantly part. He's never not there. That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I need to give that to them because the constantly, you can't miss Christ because it's Constantly, it's always. So I'm going to use that. I uh, thank you. I want royalties on that. That's mine. <laughs> you got it. You'll get twice what I get. 
<laughs> did, you, did, you have, did you have your hand up? What's your name? Patrick. Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Nice to meet you. Good um, to meet you. I think you did a good job. I'm just going to say thank you for the little gift because it helps me to realize sometimes when I see, I'm filled with reverence, but I'm seeing why. I, I see him. He's, he, he sees not just a mastery just of something, like a mastery of skill. He sees it tying up like a beauty and almost like bringing it all together and yep. <coughs> a, a massive like harmony, almost like the end of a, a composer's theme or something. And then it all just, it just ties up right at the end and bleak, and that, that's that light, he sees yep. that fire. He's almost intimidated by it, but it reminds me of the, um, the signature. I took some Protestant friends to a Catholic mass and they left and they said, one thing y'all have down is the reverence and the awe. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminded me of, it, it maybe it's like a little bit of us, there's a piece of that same awareness. Yep. Yep. Don't leave out of, of your reading of this poem, the buckling. <coughs> the buckling. You know, the, the, the fire is at its greatest when it's crushed. Well, you know, I don't think we like to admit that into our lives because none of us is comfortable with crosses, but, but don't forget that here, right? I mean, I'm saying that because sometimes when we're devastated by something going on in our lives, I think at those moments, I think we probably feel Christ is not there, and yet if, he, if he's anywhere, he's there then, um, but he's there always anyway. But just briefly, because we've got to go on. If you a real quick question. Is it incorrect to feel that if you really are Catholic, that you don't believe Christ is everywhere? It's hard for me to put those two things together, honestly. If he's the Logos, and I, I believe he is, all of my reading, this poem, the poem we're going to, you know, all that we're doing, it, he's everywhere. He's, there's nowhere he's not. How could, how could he have created this world and not... If you, if you write a book... Well, that's what I... No, that's what oh, I'm sorry. Say. If, if you are a Catholic and you've yeah. read... Well, I've been fortunate enough to read the Gospels and mm-hmm. all there possibly is. To not know that Christ is everywhere? I mean, you should know that. Yeah. That's what I meant. Well, yeah, sorry. Yes. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Yes. I, no, 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 no. No, I... Part of... Here, let's start. No, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Okay, let's get going. I've got um, a confession to make here before we start, just so you know, because this is really important to me. The, the reason I'm doing this class, Father gave a homily about six months ago in which he quoted Milton and, um, and Satan. And we were in the midst of the literature's prophecy class, and it just occurred to me, I, I've not wanted to do Milton, just not wanted um, when we did the class, and it suddenly struck me that it might be useful to put these two things together. In this class, I'm going to go back into a lot of the historical background in the Reformation. I'm not a historian, and I don't, I don't have the feel for history that a historian would have, and I'm not a theologian, um, although I've read a lot. St. Thomas has been, I can't imagine my life without him. I mean, I've been reading him all my life. Um, Last year, I mean, I, several times during our work together, I, I bring St. Thomas into the discussion, and uh, particularly when we did Dante, because you can't read Dante without some sense of St. Thomas. And Marcy came in one day, and she, she bought the Summa, 
and she showed me, she showed me this leather band. I, I go online and I have these ragged books and she walks in and she shows me a brand new leather bound copy of the Summa. I've not forgiven her since. Um, anyway, I'm not, a th I'm not a theologian, but um, everything we're going to be touching on here is rooted in history. It's a fact I believe we're still living out and it's um, I mean, it's soaked in theology. I mean, you can't you can't look at this without dealing with theological doctrinal matters. So um, my field is literature. Um, I'm not comfortably being a catechist. My focus is here, but I'm going to be stepping out of that role to do Milton and Dante. And I, so I just want you to know, going in, if, if you have quarrels with me, be patient or kind or forgiving or understanding um, because we're going to be touching on a lot of really delicate, really delicate matters here, okay? Okay, um, why this class? At the heart of it is literature and our faith. Um, Pope Francis asked the entire Catholic Church a year ago, a year and a half ago, to read Dante. I, I don't recall him doing anything like that. He's never asked the whole Catholic Church to read Theology of the Body or St. Thomas or you name it. He asked the church to read Dante. Why in the world would he have done that? I believe he did it because the entire catechism of the church is there. And it's not there as an idea, it's there as a story so that it's presented exactly the way we live our lives in a story day by day, engaging with each other in, in this case, Dante is, <laughs> he has as his guide a pagan, Virgil. For two-thirds of that journey, he's, he's being taught things about his faith, indirectly about his faith, from a pagan. Dante ends the Middle Ages, effect, I think, believe, effectively blings, brings them to an end. When we get there, you'll see why. I believe that, that the Divine Comedy is prophetic in, this, in, in more than just a literary sense. The beginnings of the modern commercial regime our regime. We live in a commercial republic. The beginnings of the modern commercial regime are Florence exactly on the day Dante was born, 1265. 1265 is the beginning of the first burger commercial republic in the West of the modern kind. What Dante shows us in the Divine Comedy is us. It's a commercial world, it's a, it's a new city it, it's, it's after the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire when cities have either been under the control of the emperor or the pope. Feudal communities. This is a commercial regime. It has no allegiance to either. It's absolutely independent. That's the prototype of America. What Dante shows us in every canto is us. The envy, the greed, the way the commercial regime pushes us to always aspire, to fight. If, if those of you who've read the Divine Comedy know that the Guelphs and Ghibellines are in, wait, the political quarrels in Florence, people don't just disagree with each other, they kill each other. I mean, I, I'm not, exactly, they kill each other. Turn on the TV today, I mean, it's hard, it's hard not to see people, they're using language, but they're effectively killing each other. I mean, I mean it's just inhuman to hear the discourse going on today. That world has its beginnings in Dante. 
several centuries later, Milton is writing. Milton's on the, actually on the verge of the modern world. He's a Protestant. He writes Paradise Lost. He, he's writing at a time when the Reformation is already well underway. And um, here's the strange thing that it was something of an eye-opener for me. I've, I've read of these men all of my life. I've had to read them when I taught courses because I had to know the history. I've never read them with such, I've read them piecemeal before. I've never read them with such a concentration as I did for this to, to you know, try to get ready for this class. I was astonished, absolutely astonished. I read all of that stuff and I thought, we're still here. This is where we are. This is our world. So this is not a small thing for me, for our faith. If I were to say to any of us, to me, to any of you, can you give a good defense of your faith? Can you take Christ to the world and make a defense of him? Can, are you aware of fundamental differences between the Protestant faith and our own? Could you articulate them? Do you know why? Even more importantly for me, do you understand the implications of those beliefs for the way we live our lives? So when Father gave that homily afterwards, I thought it, it, this would be a good thing. And it's interesting too. When Father made his first announcement about the course, I thought he tripped over and he said, Dr. Alexander is going to give this course on the Protestant and Catholic souls. And he stopped as if he were saying, well, we all have the same, people have souls. What's he mean? It's, it's not like Protestants are born with a different soul. And, you know, um, it might have been better to say Protestant and Catholic sensibilities. But I think there's something to be said for Protestant Catholic souls because the beliefs, we all have a soul. It's got an end. Do our beliefs matter? Will it change the nature of the way we act, who we are, what we do in the world? So the whole point of this class, is, as I conceived it, was to put the, the Protestant world next to ours, Milton and Dante, to see what we could learn about our own faith, and if it wouldn't strengthen us in our ability to understand it, what, what it is, and the implications of living it out, and the implications of not living it out. If you have another faith, does it matter? Why? Can we answer that question? So that was the genesis. That was the reason for putting this together. Um, now let, me, let me put this more pointedly if I can here just for a second. If we all have a soul and a natural end to be with God, um, what does it matter? What does it matter? If we were raised Jewish or Islamic, Muslim, um, what difference would it make? If we were raised believing in Calvin, who cares? Calvin believes in, he absolutely believes in Christ. All of these reformers believe in Christ. If you're raised Lutheran, what difference would it make? If you're raised Catholic, all of us believe in, I mean, except for the Jews and Muslims, we all believe in Christ. Who, then what difference does it make? And I'm asking that pretty seriously. They're, they all believe in Christ. They, they try to live, live decent lives. So why, what's the big fuss? Who cares? What difference does it make? I hope by the time we're done, um, 
that the difference will become clear because it's everything in some ways. And that's not to demean. I mean, these, Calvin was ab absolutely dedicated. Why would that man have written what he did if he didn't love Christ? Same with Luther. You know, all these men were devoted to Christ. Um, what difference does it make? So um, that, to me, is the fundamental question for all of us to tackle here. Um, we're going to look. We're going to set the Protestant mind next to the Catholic to see what it means, and we're going to do it through two of, of the greatest epic poets that have written. And both of them, in a sense, at least from the way that I'm presenting it to you, are modern. Dante's looking. In fact, in my, you'll see when we get there. I believe Dante's more modern than Milton. I'll make that case that he really is far closer to us than we think he is. Milton is on the verge of the modernity. He's a part of the Reformation movement. But there's a lot of what's going on in Milton that actually looks back. But both of them are Christian poets on the verge of modernity. They're showing us something about the modern world that I think is important for us to know. So that's, that's what we're going to do. So let me stop. I want to look at the Reformation thinkers um, closely for a minute. But any questions or about what we're doing or why? Um, I hope you all got some food, um, and there's wine. <laughs> I hope. I hope you're not shy about it. When Bob and Marcy come, just wait. By the way, I'm going to ask if you all could just if we could have volunteers each week. If a couple of you could volunteer to bring something, it won't be the same without eating <laughs> and, and drinking. You know, underline I'm always going to bring something. Underline the drinking. <laughs> Okay, let's, yes. Are you, we're going to study Paradise Lost first. Mm -hmm. Is that um, not chronological as they were? Right. Is there, did you give an explanation why when you wanted to do this? Probably not as, as much <laughs> as I should have. I I, I want to end with Dante because I think Dante offers us a larger world. And it's one I want to leave everybody with. I didn't want to, I didn't want to end with Milton. Um, I, I want to put out, I want to, I want to try to represent the Reformation world as well as I can in background and in the poem to, um, to, see, to see if we can see what it means to read a work and, and know that it's Protestant when there's nothing explicit about it that's Protestant. You know, it's a poem about the fall. There's nothing explicitly Catholic about Dante. He, the poem starts with him wanting to go to God. He starts to climb this mountain. He really is. That's what he wants. He sees the sun. He wants to go to God. He starts to climb this mountain and finds he can't on his own. He can't do it alone. There's already, at the beginning, there's the fundamental difference. Dante cannot do this alone. It's not a matter of his faith. He cannot do it by himself. He gets beaten back, and Virgil comes to help him, a pagan, the old world, and a pagan, not a Christian, and helps him two-thirds of the way through his journey. That in itself says a lot about the differences between. So, the, so what I wanted to do is for that reason, and also for this, Milton is terribly hard to read. The language is not easy. <clears throat> I think the message behind it is fairly simple. When you read the poem, you'll see it's got a very simple plot. Dante is very easy to read. It's, it'll be much easier to read. It's very difficult, and I would like people to struggle with 
all that Dante is presenting with us because it, it, it more immediately relates and supports our faith, I think. Um, so. Thank you. so welcome, thank you for asking. Um, so we're not treating them chronologically. Um, I don't know what the implications of that. We're going to start with the Reformation. We're going to go back in time, but as I've already suggested, going back in time is actually going to take us to the commercial republic, which is our world. Um, another way of putting that is that there may be, well, let's see, there may be something more timeless about Dante than Milton. But let's see when we get there. Let's see. Okay. Um, if you take a look at your packet, the notes. No, not the, the packet. Um, you'll see um, that you've got a number of things in that. I don't want to go through it. It's all the same. But for a moment, I want to just give a, a very, I want to just identify a couple of important principles to keep in mind as we go forward. So if you go to the, uh, your packet, you'll see the brief thumbnail history of church and state. You all have that? At the top, you've got a number of quotes, passages from the Bible. Yes? It's this here. This one says brief thumbnail history. You all have it? Oh, by the way, <coughs> I'm out of shape. Um, the packet that I gave you um, has got a lot of overlapping um, files. It's, I tried to do the best I could to sort them out. There, this is stuff from years ago, and I haven't looked at it, so there'll be a little bit of overlapping. But I, but I'd rather you deal with that than not have it or a mess. I think they're fairly well organized. I would encourage all of you to read that. It's brief, it's very short, but it gives you a, a, um, a brief thumbnail sketch of the history and the background on all the things that will be pertinent to this class. Some, some things to know about church history and, and more particularly things to know about the um, Civil War in England because that was crucial during Milton's life. So I would encourage you all to read that. It's brief. I think you'll find it helpful. Um, you've got a chronology of dates, um, and they'll repeat themselves in some sense. But there's a good in that, because you'll, you'll keep getting different things from different perspectives. But it'll, it'll help reinforce a picture here. So read it, because it'll make a difference in, in what you do with Milton. Okay. So just the brief thumbnail history. The, the, one of the great accomplishments of the medieval Catholic Church is the way it got embroiled in state affairs and the way it finally sorted itself out. If you look at the history, you see by the time we get to Dante that the church has, has finally, in a, in a significant way, extricated itself, pulled itself out so it stands outside the political realm where it should be. Um, John Paul made that really clear when he was Pope, when he told all the priests to stay out. I can't remember his language, but he told them to. He wasn't asking people to not vote or be involved in politics, but 
he did recognize that there was a line that was important for people to be aware of. When you look at what's going on with Milton, the fundamental problem with Milton is the church and state have not separated out. When Henry um, declares himself the head of the state of England, he, he makes the state, he says, I'm sovereign concerning matters of doctrine. That's a king arbitrarily saying, I'm, I'm going to be the one who decides on matters of doctrine. The church becomes an established church at that point. When America's founding um, takes place, it takes the form it does because it's a way of answering that our first amendment is there will be no establishment of religion. That's not an accident. They know, they know the problems of that. So when we're looking at Milton's, we're looking at, in England at a country who has not separated out church and state, even though it's happened in, in, in Italy. It's, I think it's one of the reasons why the Renaissance started in Italy and moved west. So many things came out of that. We'll get, we'll get to that when we get um, to Dante. Um, but one of the great accomplishments of the medieval church was to get clear on the separation of powers, exactly what the church was doing, exactly what the state should be doing. Okay? So this is just a, a brief thumbnail description of phases of that struggle. So take a look at the quotes. Render to Caesar, my kingdom is not of this world. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. Fear God, honor the king. We ought to obey God rather than men. There is no power um, but from God. The princes of this world come to naught. They said, Lord, here are two swords. He said, it is enough. If you look at that first paragraph, um, you'll see that a, a number of the early church fathers clearly saw the differences between these two, these two powers, these two realms of authority and power. St. Augustine argues that the two cities make up man's existence, the heavenly city living by faith but as a captive or stranger, and the earthly city living by laws, seeking wealth and power and doing all it can to gain these. The aim of the earthly city is power, power and control. Um, Pope Glacius writes, two there are by which this world is chiefly ruled, the sacred authority of the priesthood and the royal power. Of these, the responsibility of priests is more weighty. Why? Because priest, priests have as their care final, the, the soul with respect to final ends. Right? Caesar is, is ruler Christ acknowledged that. He's ruler over things of the temporal order, things concerning the body, our temporal good here. Christ, has, has, as his concern, is to priest final ends, our ultimate destiny. Our ultimate destiny is to return to God. So there are two distinct powers with different kinds of authority. One important thing to remember here, because it's, it's going to play a major role in everything we do, if you've begun to read Paradise Lost, you know that the Chapter 1 opens with um, Satan coming to awareness from the fall. He, he comes out of the lake like this extraordinary hero, this magnificent figure, like an epic hero in the epic tradition. He rouses the demons the way an epic hero does. They come out of the lake and they go off and they build pandemonium, the city of hell. So immediately in the first chapter we have an image of the city, of a certain city. It's going to be set against the earthly I mean, the heavenly city in a minute. But here, at the beginning, you've got two powers. Um, those of you who've read the Old Testament know that the earthly city 
comes into existence with Cain's exile. Now that's, that's of fundamental importance. Cain kills Abel, he's exiled. His son, Enoch, is the builder of the first city. So the building of the first city comes into existence when man attempts to live without God, when he attempts to be sufficient to himself like a god. The city comes into being as if it's an attempt to live without God, to be self-sufficient. Enoch is the founder of the first city. So in the ancient world, St. Augustine says there are two powers, and they have, as their ends, two distinct cities, the New Jerusalem and heaven, the earthly kingdom. The Christians on earth live in a different state. We're a pilgrim city or a peregrine. We're a peregrine people. A wandering. Christ said, this is not my home. Christians, according to the church fathers, should never feel at home. If we ever get too comfortable in our home, we should start to look at ourselves. We're supposed to be wandering. We're in exile. If we ever look at our home here as I finally made it, I'm successful, I'm self-sufficient. You know, you're reaching a point where, why need God? I mean, um, so St. Augustine's concept of the city is the city, the Christian city, is that it's um, in exile, it's moving towards its home. And the two cities set off against it are the temporal city and the heavenly. Um, St. Augustine was very influenced by um, Plato. And if you know Plato at all, you know he had this demeaning attitude towards material things, towards the body. He called the body a prison house. This is really important. Plato's idea of, of the body, Plato's notion of the city is that laws were punitive because the body was basically recalcitrant. It was stubborn. Okay? Um, it, it was in the body that all the bad things came from. So the city, according to Plato and St. Augustine, is that it's basically, the laws are punitive, okay, corrective. Now, hold that in mind as we go forward. Um, Three twelve, the Edict of Milan. Um, Constantine makes Christianity acceptable to the state, and that's an interesting moment because, um, in some sense, by having his authority behind it, he indirectly establishes it, gives it the authority of the state. Four ten, somebody take as the sack of Rome. We can we can mark it later if you look at that third paragraph down. 455, in control of the Mediterranean, he also sacked Rome. In 476, the Emperor Augustulus um, was deposed by the leader of a mixed band of Germanic tribes. 476 marks the virtual end of the Roman Empire as it existed in its glory. In 451, when the Huns threatened Rome, it was Pope Leo, not the imperial official, who went out to meet them and negotiated a, a settlement. It's at that moment that the church becomes absolutely integral, embroiled in affairs of the state from that point on. So the church state, that's the moment of embroilment, when, when all the confusion really begins. 
Christmas AD 800, Pope Leo crowns Charlemagne. There, what came to light later was this notion that this donation that, that Charlemagne made sometime later, giving the Pope legal rule over Rome. And you know that Rome, the center of Christendom moves from Rome to Byzantium then. Um, and it's an interesting thing because if, if the Pope was in control of Rome, then the emperor needed, I mean, in some sense, another city. Um, but you've got this you've got this embroilment between the two at this point. It reached a, a crisis in what we know as the investiture controversy, and you'll see the dates there, 1075 to 1122, because during that period, the king had the power to invest priests. And... Um, and that meant that they were under his control, not answerable to the church or pope. Um, 10, on the next page, page 2, 1075, Gregory publishes the decree prohibiting lay investiture. That's the name of it. He gives the power to depose the emperor. Henry resisted and was excommunicated and finally he came and asked for the pope's forgiveness and was brought back into the church again. <coughs> That effectively marks the end. At the end of the investor, investiture conflict, the, the church has separated itself out and claimed a freedom from the emperor and an authority to take care of its own business. Um, the second phase consists of all these legal actions involving popes. All of them are lawyers. And you can imagine they had to be to, to deal with what was going on. This, this is a time of real education. I mean, they're, they're centers of education. It's not widespread. But when you see what the popes were doing at this time, you recognize that they realized they had to become educated if they were going to deal with these problems. Um, and all of them were. Um, out of these struggles came the Decretum, the greatest law book of the 12th century, and a work that gave inspiration to a whole community of commentators called Decretus. The work emphasized the role of the pope as supreme judge and legislator in all ecclesiastical affairs. Now, when you put this all together and think about Henry saying he's the supreme head of the church, you know, um, you can see what a reversal is taking place in England at, uh, at Milton's talk. Um, um, the middle paragraph, two issues crystallized during this time. Frederick raised questions whether the Pope could legitimately meddle in politics because the church was still very much involved and had an authority um, that was questionable. The second had to do with Gregory's use of the donation to justify ruling Rome and crowning emperors. If the emperor gave the pope power, why couldn't another rescind it? The papal claims to imperial power were being severely challenged. If, if, if the donation from Constantine were true, if that were the basis that the emperor could do that, that means he could take it away. So you can see the problems emerging here. What is the ultimate authority, the, the, the origins of authority for the church? And what's its proper role or responsibility in affairs of state? And conversely, um, what are the proper ends of the state? What can it do and not do, particularly with respect to religious matters, doctrinal, doctrinal matters? The third phase, this is really important. Sometime around the 9th or 10th century, Aristotle is recovered from the past. The Middle Ages are Platonic. St. Augustine's Platonic. Um, the Arab countries kept 
Aristotle alive and gradually his translations get passed on to the West through a number of Islamic writers. They're very, very important. Averroes and Maimonides and a number of Eastern writers like that. But they finally get to the West. One of the, one of the greatest doctors, learners, using Aristotle was Albert, who was Aquinas' teacher. And you know that what, what happened with Aquinas is that he took Aristotle and radically shifted the nature of the basis of the church. That's how, that's how important it was at that time. And let me just give one, one basic reason why. Um, at the very bottom of page two, um, the political community is essential to man because it assists him in his perfecting his nature. This is Aristotle. Aristotle said man's a political animal. He cannot live alone. He's communal by nature. It's in his nature to learn. And we cannot learn without other people. We were not meant to be alone. That's Aristotle. And the end of man in the political realm was good, his perfection. That the political community can help man attain a perfection that he can't on his own. So Aristotle's emergence in the West at this time, 10th, 11th century, is major. Um, it's inspiring all sorts of new thoughts. Um, it's setting up controversies everywhere. The controversies between St. Thomas and Bonaventure were really bitter. Um, but you've got a new image of the city, a new understanding of the city. According to Aristotle, the ends of the city are good. Man is intrinsically good. Laws are, are meant to guide him, to help him attain his end with the help of other people. There is no authority then, whether human or divine, apart from what is intrinsically good and rational. So according to Aristotle, there is in some intrinsic good to man. I set that against the Reformation thinkers, because the Reformation thinkers all say man's depraved. There's nothing good in his character at all. Um, so it's out of this rediscovery of Aristotle that these new commercial republics come into existence, St. Thomas is the one who filled out this thinking, who took Aristotle to new depths, and Dante's the product of it in the Divine Comedy. So that's where we're going. So that's the rough background um, leading up to the Reformation. Um, the investiture conflict, the struggles between church and state to sort out. In Dante's time, they get sorted out. That's 14th century, Dante's writing around 1300, okay? Milton's writing mid-15th century, 14, what is it, 1467, um, he, he publishes, or sorry, six, what did they say? What, 1667? So, Milton's writing a couple centuries later. Now remember, the Renaissance is starting in Italy with all of these new ways of thinking, new new communities, a new way of looking at man, new possibilities, art is flourishing. Where did that come from? No accident. It would not have happened under a Platonic Catholic Middle Ages. Would not have. There's this great flowering. Copernicus comes out of it. The, um, his new discoveries about the actual ordering of the planets, art, music, and new forms of government. So that hap that's happening around 12, 13, 1400. It's gradually moving west. It takes 200 years for the Renaissance to get to England. That's when Shakespeare and Milton are writing. That's the Renaissance in England. And that's the period when Henry says couldn't, he couldn't get support for his divorce. 
and he, said, he makes himself the head of the church concerning doctrinal matters. So all of those centuries of sorting out church and state powers get reversed in a moment. And it leads to all of these problems in England. And it's during this time when there's um, the, the printing has been, printing press has been developed, um, printing's dispersed, you know, readings are made available to people, education is occurring more broadly, people are reading independently on their own, it's a Christian world, these are for the most part Christians, all of these men, and um, they are aware of corruptions <coughs> everywhere in the church, the Catholic Church has moved to France, it's under the control of the French, in lots of ways, under the French king, all of these thinkers are aware of how corrupted the Catholic Church. It's a little bit like, <laughs> what's changed? <laughs> with, 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 all, with all the, by the way, I, I, hope, I don't want to be, I'm never going to leave the Catholic Church. It'll never happen. Ne if, if it won't, I won't say why right now, but I will never. I don't care what happens in our church with all the sexual abuses. and. Um, anyway, there's all these corruptions going on. You've got all these men thinking independently on their own and coming to these very different conclusions. And what that did was produce this reform, this need to answer the corruptions of Christianity. That's where we've come. Okay. So that's a general, just a thumbnail background of what's going on that brings us up to Milton's time. And now what I would, I would like to do is take a look at these Reformation thinkers. This is where we're going. Because this brings us directly to Milton. <coughs> if you take a look at your packet, you'll see um, you'll see. God bless. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. One of your pages has the Reformation thinkers on it. Milton Paradise Lost. Lecture one. Yes. It says lecture one, Milton Paradise Lost. That comes to my rescue again. Yeah. Right. Yes. If you all pull that out, it might help a little bit. I'm here for you, Bob. <laughs> you always have been. You always have been. This isn't going to line up exactly, but but just know that you've got that sheet to go through because you can go back to it when you want to look at it yourselves. But, um, John Wycliffe, 1320-1384. He's writing while the church is what we call today in captivity in France. Um, and he's aware of the, the, the way in which the Catholic Church has given itself over to luxuriance indulgence, wealth. Um, we know that at this point em um, emperors, kings um, have had a large control over the um, over the priests and bishops, the election of them, the properties. When Dante's writing, he's, he's writing outraged at the acts of simony, selling church offices, priests marrying. If any of you have read the Divine Comedy, you know that the Divine Comedy is filled with Catholics. Lots of them popes. Um, so these men are very aware, very sensitive to little things that show us ourselves. Um, 
these men are too. Wycliffe was very aware of the corruptions of the church, the discrepancies between poor and wealth. Um, he read the scriptures, he loved them. Um, he believed, this is after St. Francis too, you know, by the way. He believed that the church should be more committed to poverty, that priests couldn't be good priests without being poor. Um, he's called the morning star of the Reformation. In some ways, when you read him and you put him next to Luther, you can almost say Luther was a plagiar. He just, so many of his ideas he took from Wycliffe. Um, he was a follower of William of Ockham, and if, if you know anything about the philosophy in the Middle Ages, you know that Ockham is what we would call today a nominalist. I, that may not mean much to you, but nominalists said, this is so important for more reason than we can go into here, the nominalist says the only thing that's real are concrete particulars. The universals may exist in our mind, but not in, uh, not objectively in reality. So, so Plato's notion of forms, they would have objected to. There are no universals. Well, if there are no universals, if there's nothing that has a universal nature, there's no trinity. Because we know the trinity isn't defined by matter. Not the Father, not the Son, not the Spirit. So his thinking was a direct attack on the theology dealing with the Trinity. Um, he believed that there was no spiritual evidence for the authority of the Pope, I mean, sorry, scriptural evidence. He could find no evidence and uh, believed that the Pope didn't have the authority that he claimed to have. He, he, he went this far in support of the Pope. He believed that a Pope could be a legitimate a Pope so long as he was committed to the same poverty that Christ lived and that Peter lived. And if he didn't, he was not a legitimate pope. He had no authority at all. Um, he was troubled by the wealth of the church. Um, he believed that the priest should be poor. Um, he believed that the hierarchy of the church should be destroyed and the monastery should be destroyed. He believed that they were centers of corruption. He really believed that each person had a special relationship with God and he could only make it real if he lived in poverty. He believed with the Donatists, if you know the heresy of the church, you know that the Donatists were the ones who said, um, if a priest was in sin, it invalidated his administration of the sacraments. St. Augustine answered that centuries earlier. Because we know, we know that all of us are in sin. If you waited for somebody to be pure, you'd, we wouldn't have a church. He had that kind of rigorous mentality. The Donatists are still alive. You know, when we get... I was reading an article by um, this... Um, if you've read Robert Barron, book th who did the Catholicism work in this, he's got this wonderful book called Seeds, where he's describing a, um, a Catholic family getting up out of the church because they were so disgusted with what the priests were saying or something. I don't remember the details of it, but I remember he said... It was, it was an interesting comment on on the, inf the Donatist influence still present in us today. And the point that he made there that I think needs to be made always, we should be reminded of it, is the church is Christ. Always. Always Christ. It, it, it's suffering from corruptions. It's still Christ. Um, full of sinners. Um, if we're waiting for the church, or critical of the church, wait, expecting the church to get purified anytime soon, it's not going to happen. 
it, it, that was true under Peter, it was true under the apostle, it was true under all the struggles in the early church with all the heresies. The church has never not been in battle. It's always been in battle. And internally, it's always struggling with itself. How can it not? So he wanted a purified church. He was with the Donatists, believing that only when everybody was pure, poor, could the sacraments be administered licitly, legally. Um, now here's, here's where it gets really important, and this is where everything's going to be going on all of these Reformation thinkers. He believed that since Christ was crucified once, that sacrifice was completed and over. Christ returned to the Father, and he existed locally with the Father. In his mind, there was no way Christ could leave heaven and be present in the Eucharist. It's on that basis that he discredited the Eucharist, the real presence. Okay? He said this, and this anticipates what Luther is going to call consubstantiation. I'll get to that in just a second. Wycliffe said this, the nature of the bread is not destroyed by what's done with a priest. It's only elevated so as to become a substance more honest. So he believed that the wafer and the wine maintained their substance, what they were. That it was only by an act of faith that a transubstantiation took place, but without altering the wine or the bread. Now hold on to that for a minute, because it's going to take us back to old heresies, but that was his thinking. You can already see that a literalist way of conceiving of, of church matters is beginning to enter the church. You know, he doesn't have a metaphysics. I'll come to that in a second. He's, he, he lacks a proper understanding of metaphysical things. He's saying it can't be because Christ is locally with the Father when he returned to heaven. The bread, while becoming by virtue of Christ's words, the body of Christ does not cease to be bread. When it's become sacramentally, when it becomes, when it has become sacramentally the body of Christ, it remains bread substantially. It doesn't change its nature. We believe that it's transubstantiated, that it becomes. It doesn't just retain its nature and, hold, and become Christ too. It becomes that. That it is, the, in that wine and bread, is the actual presence of Christ. He's there. So when we take him in, we, we are taking, this is so important, it goes to fundamentally what we're all here for. Um, we're taking God in his divine nature into us. Which means part of us is becoming divine. Or that should be what's going on in our lives. We, we don't just move through the world anymore the way other human beings do. The, the Father's had a word for this, I'll come to it in a minute. We, we are gradually becoming divinized. Wycliffe, Wycliffe says no. But that's not what, by a matter of faith we believe that, but there's no real presence. Okay? Martin Luther. Luther was also responding to the corruptions of the church. You all know that. He hung up the theses in Wittenberg, and that was one of the, what some people take as the official beginning of um, the Reformation. He believed that man's personal relationship with Christ is more important than any that was mediated through the church or its hierarchy or authorities. Like Wycliffe, Luther believed that man was essentially depraved. Um, 
that he had a personal relationship with God that didn't have to go through and the high the priest. He believed man is depraved, that he has no free will. He's justified by faith. I think some people have attributed this line to him, sin as you like, provided you believe. Faith for Luther is imputed. That means it's put on. Faith for a Catholic means it should be received inwardly so that it begins to transform us. We can no longer act the way we were before we believed. Our, our call is to holiness out of the world. <coughs> to live that faith so that we're not cut up wealth, power, comfort, image, all the things that drive them on the modern commercial regime. Um, he opposed the sacerdotal office. <coughs> he said all the baptized made up church, that every single person was priest, prophet, king. We do too. But he believed there was no sacerdotal sacerdotal office. So there were no holy orders. The, the priest for Luther came out of the congregation, was chosen out of the congregation. There are some Lutheran communities that still hold to that old way, but they're very, very rare. Um, he reduced the number of sacraments from seven to two. He believed in baptism, and he believed in the Eucharist. This is the one place where, Euth where Luther, sorry, where Luther <laughs> disagreed. <laughs> <laughs> where Luther differed with Zwingli and Calvin. Luther believed in the real presence when they didn't. We'll get to Calvin and see this more clearly. But Luther's notion of the real presence was like Wycliffe's. He believed in what he called consubstantiation, that the real presence actually entered the bread while the bread and wine remained the same. Now, why does that matter? Hold on. But I want to come to that. Why does that matter? But hold on. So he was different from the Reformation thinkers in that way. Okay? Marriage wasn't sacred. Holy orders weren't sacred. Um, priests could marry now. Um, but he radically differed with all the other Reformation thinkers in thinking that the, that the real presence was actually there in, in the Eucharist. Some people have raised interesting questions about this. Luther believed that it was an act of faith that, that um, consecrated that act. So that some people have, have put the, the matter this way. So when the con and I think Luther would be the, the same to agree with it. When the congregation left, since the transformation took place by virtue of their faith as a collective body, when they left, um, that bread and wine that had presumably been changed could have been thrown away, just discarded. Because its real power, authority, rested in the faith that the congregation gave it. You know that that can't happen here. When we leave the church, you know what happens. The host goes into the tabernacle because we believe it was completely transformed. So you can already begin to see the implications of this in some sense, even if, even if we haven't spelled them out. Calvin. <clears throat> like Wycliffe and Luther, Calvin believed in the um, infallible authority of the Scripture. All of them believed that the ultimate authority for the church rested in Scripture. 
What mattered most was a person's faith in Christ in his reading of that scripture. Man was justified by faith. Um, he has, um, he's depraved. He has no free will. Um, the, the, where, Luke, where Calvin differed from the other Re- uh, Reformation thinkers was believing that God was sovereign, that his will was absolute, that man could do nothing to affect his will. Absolutely helpless. That whatever he did, whatever he did, was already predestined. The radical, one radical aspect of Calvin's thinking was that he believed that some people were predestined to damnation even before they were born. Those of you who did Moby Dick with me last year, you know that we reached a, it was a crisis point for me. For those of you who weren't there, we were reading Moby Dick, and if you know the story at all, you know that Ishmael is going to go out sailing, and he spends a little while in this Nantucket town and then sets off for sea. When Melville describes everything that goes on in that town, it's, it's all comic, it's very funny, but it's really um, a, a pretty serious critique of, of um, Christianity, the failure of a Christian people to live up to its Christian ideals. There's not a character that Ishmael meets in that opening third of the novel that isn't failing in fundamental ways. You look at their characters, they're all Christians, and there's something wrong with every one of them. And then they go out to sea, and it's at sea where the deeper metaphysical issues that are at stake in that northern Protestant world get uncovered. And one of the things you have to say is, this is Christianity when you take away the sacraments. Truly, take away the sacraments, what's Christianity? It's a moral code. Who, who, who of us in a fallen condition, if Christianity is reduced to a moral code, who of us can live it? And if we don't have the help of Christ. So, um, (laughs) sorry, I jumped forward like that. But, I mean, what we're seeing here is the beginnings of that taking place. Christ is being taken out. Or the the sacred, the divine aspect of his nature is being taken out. Objectively taken out. It's being replaced by a person's faith in, in in what's taking place on an altar. You could take, according to Calvin... You could take great use and put it out there if you believed. I think that actually happens. We've got, I think we've gone to masses where that actually took place. Not a mass of, of Protestant service. Um, where the understanding was it was your act of faith that made that what it was. So um, a radical change is beginning to take place here. Sorry. So in your comment about that man was preordained or predestined to be damnation, what did he think? Did he ever come up with what the purpose of man living here was for him? <laughs> here, let me. I'm going to open up the panel. Yeah, you really did. <laughs> What's your name? David. David. David, hold on five minutes, can you? Because I'm going to I'm going to finish this, and then I want to ask those questions that go to that. <laughs> Suzanne and I were talking a couple of nights ago, just going through this because I when I was putting it all together for. Because I'd never put it to collectively together like this, um, I was just shocked. I mean, shaken by what you know, watching what was going on. And I presented Calvin to her, and, and her first comment was, "What's the purpose in living?" <laughs> but I, I, I don't, I don't want to go there. Could hold on to it for just a minute, would you? Um, so, Pete, man is justified by faith. He's completely depraved. 
He's predestined. There's nothing he can do, good or evil, that hasn't been predestined. Okay? The reason for, I mean, let me give the the reason for it was because when man fell, he damned himself, and the only way he could be saved is by Christ's action. What what Calvin believed was that it was because God had absolute sovereignty, man could do nothing on his own. So the reason for living, if there were one to give you a simple answer now, would be um, because of your faith in Christ, because if you believe in him, ultimately you'll be saved. That was their belief. The, the, dark, the, dark side, yes, the dark side of that is, for Calvin, some people would not because they were, like the, those who were predestined to be saved, there were those who were predestined to be damned. It was a settled question. Um, Isn't that kind of true when you think about Judas? <laughs> wait, can you? <laughs> wait. Wait one second. Um, did I miss? Says in the Bible. He was predestined Here, quickly. To Luther, the sacraments are tokens or signs of God's love to Zingli, their covenants. That's how Zingli looked at the, these things. Calvin believed that since man was justified by faith, no mass was needed. The sacrifice had already been completed. He rejected the idea of transubstantiation, held that Christ was present in the bread and wine to anybody who believed by faith that he was. So the minister could put out grape juice or, or any kind of wine. It was a person's act of faith that made that effective in his life, if I can put it that way. Um, but that Christ was not actually present. Okay? So it's a matter of what happens in a person's faith that gives that act its significance. Um, Calvin believed, he said this, he said that he believed that the sacrifice as it was practiced, practiced in the Catholic Church was the greatest blasphemy ever worked on man. That was what he thought of what... So you can see when you start putting this together that all of... And what, if I can, here, let me just reduce this to Calvin and then make a general comment. So the four marks, the four marks typical of Calvinism are man's totally depraved. After the, the fall for all Reformation thinkers was complete. That's a fact shared by all of them. The consequences of the fall were complete. That's a fundamental difference between the Catholic Church and Protestant. The effects of the fall were complete. Man was depraved. Absolutely. No good left in it. The Catholic Church believes his essence is good. He's wounded. We call it concupiscence. Total depravity. Hatred of the flesh, the body. Think about, set that off against John Paul's theology, the body. How completely different the attitude towards sex or the body would be. Hatred of the flesh. Absolute distrust of human reason. And why not? If everything's depraved, how in the world could you trust man? Unless, unless man were chosen, predestined to be chosen, one of the elect, and he did everything by faith, everything he did by reason would be wrong. Reason was corrupted. And contempt for natural law. He hated Aristotle. But there's any natural good in man or a natural law. Here, St. Thomas says, 
the, the basis for all that we do in the world is natural law. Its ultimate source is God. Reason is good. Natural law is good. We are wounded. Now, here, let me just put this together if I can to make a couple of, of quick generalizations. According to all the Reformation thinkers, man is depraved, he has no free will. Universally, um, they deny the real presence in Christ. Luther keeps it, but he, like Wycliffe, he believes that the bread and wine remain the same in substance while Christ enters it. Now, why is that important? If you go back to the early heresies, Arianism, if you remember, if you prefer the, Ar- Arian believed that Christ was a sp- specially created man. He did not share God's divine nature. This is going to be really crucial. If Milton, we're, this is actually going to play out in Milton. He believed that man was a specially created man and the means of creation, but he didn't share in God's nature. Sibelius, what we call modalist, Sibelius believed that Christ was the father because there was only one God, only one God. He was the father come down in another mode. Okay? Now, picture all of the um, Nestorius, this is Nestorian heresy, believed that they were joined imperfectly. Now, imagine all of the church fights that took place. Because if he's not divine, what does that do for our understanding of the crucifixion, or I mean, what Christ's nature and what, he, what he's doing for us? Or if he's only divine in another mode and he really doesn't take on fully our human nature, what does that mean? According to all the church fathers and all of the heresies, the battles that were fought out, Christ is both God and man perfectly fused. If you change the nature of the Eucharist, what does that say about Christ? If the substance remains the substance and Christ enters into it, how is that different from one of the old heresies? Is that clear? No. No? Oh, wow, okay. Okay, okay. how do I straighten this out? According to our tradition, this was the tradition up to the Reformation. Eastern Church, all of the Eastern Orthodox churches, the Western churches, the Catholic Church, there was no, there was one church. The understanding from the beginning for 1600 years was Christ is fully human, fully divine, perfectly fused. You're going to see in Dante, if that's not true, the redemption didn't take place. Man's original sin was against God. The only way that sin could be answered is by somebody who had a divine nature. How could a man, if our sin was against God and it's, it's an infinite being, how can man do anything to atone for that sin? Is that clear? We sin against an infant God. We're finite. If we sacrificed our life, how could that get close to answering a sin against God? The only appropriate propitiation for that would be somebody who himself was divine who took on our nature. He had to bring something completely innocent to take on our nature to give that na- himself up to answer our sins. So for that redemption to mean to have the meaning it's supposed to, he had to be completely divine, completely human. So he didn't enter into a body that, that kept its body so that it was 
partly different and still God, he became perfectly fused. One. Wycliffe says, no, Christ is back in heaven. The wafer and the the white remain what they are, bread and wine, but God enters them. So they're not changed. I mean, St. Thomas had a better mind than that because he knows that it wouldn't make sense. Luther says, no, no, transubstantiation didn't take place, consubstantiation did. They keep their own nature, but God enters it. So the, the nature isn't transformed. So the bread and wine aren't transformed. They're, they remain essentially what they were, but something enters them. It's an imperfect union. Do that and it derogates against Christ. It's saying he, he didn't fully enter our nature. The belief of the church, and think about how different this is, radically different from the, the Reformation thinkers. By entering nature, taking on our human nature, God, if it was fallen, wounded, he made it sacred. God entered nature. The wind hover. This extraordinary bird. You know? So, um, all of these Reformation thinkers deny the real presence. They say the ultimate authority, the infallible authority for everybody is Scripture and a person's reading of it according to the inspiration of the Spirit by faith. Now, if we, I don't, does that say your name? I said, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Did that answer or not? Yes, it did. No. Innovative. <laughs> innovative. Innovative. No, no innovative kind oh, of way. Oh, sorry. Because, um, the, the bread and wine aren't changed. They remain the same. But that's because we're thinking that God can't accept our sacrifice, our little bodies, as you know, we're thinking in terms of perfection, that only God has to have a perfect sacrifice back to him in order for sin to be forgiven. But if he's God, he could take our little bodies as sacrifice and accept that as being enough. Are you following me now? You know, why does he have to have a perfect sacrifice back? He's God. He could, you know, accept anything. He could. Except that if he he accepted our sacrifice strictly human, it diminishes the sin that we commit. But how many times do you have to pay for that sin? When you look around at all the suffering in the world, has it not... No. Well, the suffering is the suffering is is a consequence. It's not it's not a sacrifice. So, it, I mean, I'm not a theologian. I'm just not talking. Um, if if the sin was against God and He accepted my sacrifice or your sacrifice or all of our sacrifices, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be Commensurate. Who says it has to be equal? I mean, why does it have to be equal? Well, I don't, I don't, let, me, let me try to get, I'm not sure that I can, I mean, I, it, to me that's a really good question. Um, I might worse it. Um, in, the, in the one instance that you're, let's say Luther, where the wine and bread are remain the same, 
while God enters them. So mm -hmm. a full transformation hasn't taken place. Mm -hmm. If that applies to human, I mean, this is sort of getting, I think, to David's question, because my, my next question is, what are the implications of these for living in our life? If we were Lutheran, if we were, who cares? In fact, let me go back to that now, and I'm going to, just to put that out. The question that I was going to come to after all of this, put these Reformation thinkers together. They all believe in Christ, mm -hmm. fundamentally. Who cares? They all, they're all going to be good. If, I mean, it's indirectly going to Christ. What does it matter? Real presence or not? Does it, or let me put it all to, maybe, maybe I've got, I mean, I have a response, but let me put it to you. What does it matter? Who cares? Real presence or not? We go up and take, everybody believes in Christ. Who cares? Is there a difference in, in the way you live your life and what happens to you? Ideas have consequences. The beliefs that we have shape who we are. Will it matter in the way we play out our lives? If so, how? That's, I think, indirectly, that's the question that Elizabeth is asking. Let's say the bread and wine remain the same, but he comes in. Does it have to be a perfect transformation or not? Well, let's, I'm asking right now, who cares? Does it matter? Anybody want to try to tackle this? I think it does, fundamentally. Real fast, I think it's probably here why the Eucharist is performed to help some people. Like, what, <clears throat> what is our intention? I mean, I, I have an idea probably 50 cent league with many of y'all. But I think maybe coming from you, saying we are doing this Eucharist, we are doing this sacrament, we are performing this, we are, the, the priest allows the bread and wine to become, and, and, and uh, he, I can't forget the exact word, but it becomes, we practice that for a certain reason. And um, I, I, I was just going to say, I mean, if you touch, because I think that underlies, I'm not quite sure, but I think that underlies why you're struggling on the, on the Eucharist. Why you're struggling. Like, why, why, well, you said, why is it not enough? He can just accept our bodies. Right. Or if he's God, I think the way you put it, if he's God, why doesn't he just forgive us? Yeah, if you put it that way. I mean, Wasn't that I the way you put that, it? Well, we offer the Eucharist is, um, I'll give it, that our walk in sanctification has a lot to do with our walk in sanctification. Not necessarily, I mean, there's like, there's forgiveness and justification, and then there's the sanctification. Mm -hmm. And Eucharist has so much to do with making us divine. Or you were saying earlier, you referred to something like that, um, and becoming holy. And that's something that's um, uniquely Catholic. Is is that aspect that walk in becoming holy and dying to ourself. And um, there, in there, is the essentialness of the Eucharist. I believe. Let me, if I can so say, I, go I ahead. I was going to hand it off go. to you, but I just thought maybe a little like pretext on that would kind of help us all be on the same page as we discussed. We'll find, so I don't know, we'll find. I, I don't David, think you go. her question can be answered given Catholicism and the way it's like trying to answer one part of a five part thesis. In other words, you know, you started out with that they didn't believe that man should, you know, be priests, they should be appointed out of the congregation that the, the body and blood, the, the, the wafer and the, and the wine was you know, changed. But then if you, through your faith, it would, it would go into you as Jesus. 
but then you could take it and throw it away and it didn't matter. So all of these things to me are conundrums and it's very hard to answer her question in that small little item because all these people had ways of thinking to get to that point. See, I, I just think it's hard for her to see that. What we're talking about, given her teaching and learning all these years, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like it's hard, it's hard to answer. Let me, let me take a stab at it if I can. I'm not sure that this is going to answer the question. Um, our belief is that a transubstantiation takes place, complete. And all of the um, ch church teachings have emerged in answer to heresies who tried to change the nature of that, what Christ was, who he was. And we, we know how, all of us know how real that was because the disciples all the time couldn't figure out who he was. So when he died and he comes back alive, I mean, you can only imagine what they would have been doing then and how well they would have understood. But that's the beginning of the church. And we know, we know that it's not clear at that point because we've got all these heresies in the church struggling. It's not like anybody had answers then. They didn't. Somebody would come up and Arius said um, that Christ is this great being, that, that in fact he's not divine. And the church had to struggle to, to clarify that because they knew if they didn't, there would be implications to that. So what, you're, what we're dealing with is all those things then applying now with the Reformation binding. Let me try to answer if I understood your question. Um, the understanding of the church was that, that that fusion had to be perfect. He had to be perfectly human, perfectly divine for a sin against God to be atoned for. If it was less than that, the sin wouldn't have been atoned for. And you're asking, if he was perfect, why couldn't he have done it, if I understood your question? Here, if, I mean, I'm not sure that this will answer it. Um, if, that, if that wasn't a perfect fusion, the sin wouldn't have been answered. It would have been less than what would have been required in justice to, answer, to atone for that sin. Um, a man couldn't do it by himself because a man's not infinite. It required a God. And since it was answering man's sin, a God that happened to be both. Christ took on a nature to do that. He had to answer a broken law against God. All of our sins go back to... That's, by the way, that's Milton's thesis. All of our sins go back to that original sin. The, the, what this book is about is the fall. That's Milton's focus. If this can answer it, I'm not sure. And then we're going we're gonna to break up for tonight because it's our time. But... Um, Dante's argument is going to be God could have forgiven him completely wiped it away or he could have left man damned either one of those options would have been a discredit to God in his creation what he did for man and his love for man so for him to really answer the, the sin that was committed he had to do he had to do the mean he could have just wiped it away and man could have started over again that wouldn't answer the problem he could have left man damned we'd still be there. Not just because we're going to break up. I'm sorry. Um, he had to do both. And the only way that he could do that is by taking our nature on completely. If it were left incomplete, if the, the bread and wine were left as bread and wine while he entered, that means that, the, that the, the answering wouldn't have been complete because he wouldn't have taken on a nature completely. Um, and by doing that and offering us, because Christ himself said, unless you eat of my bread, unless you 
you will only have life in me. What he's saying, in, in effect, is any love, this is, I mean, it goes to it, any love that doesn't fully participate in the crucifixion, any love, any way in which man attempts to live with me without going to a cross, is an incomplete love. Every marriage is performed with the Eucharist, with the sacrament, in the Mass. What's going on in our in the life of a Catholic is we have the support of Christ in us all the time to carry that out. We saw it in a poem, The Wind Hover. Next week we're going to see it in Supernatural Love where a four-year-old pricks her finger. And what's happening in that moment is whether she knows it or not, she's, she's participating in the crucifixion of Christ. That some divine love is at work with us. Those of you who did too, we have faces. When we ended, the, when we ended the, our year last year, C.S. Lewis, too, we have faces. What's at work in every human soul, whether we see him or not, is the Christian word, Christ, the Christiani Naturalite. Animus, Christian, animus Naturalite Christiani. The natural human soul. The image of Christ. What's going on in our life every day, all, all day long, whether we know it or not, is Christ is working. If you've read C.S. Lewis, if you want to read a great, those of you who weren't in the class, read Till We Have Faces. Psyche, the image of the soul, the image of Christ in the human soul, is at work with us all the time. Some divine love is at work trying to help us to do something that as humans we cannot do. It's absolutely crucial that Christ take on our nature completely or it will invalidate that act. The question for us is when we receive it, I mean, Father's been amazing on this, his homilies, you know, two weeks ago he said, if I offered a billion dollars in the Eucharist, make a choice when you come to church, which would you choose? Because what he was saying for the last five weeks in that whole five-week period when he, the bread of life sequence was, yeah. the Eucharist, the Eucharist, the Eucharist, the Eucharist, he says, I, it's the most extraordinary thing in my life. I get to take God into me every day. Right. How many people approach the Eucharist believing that? No, I don't either. I don't either, Elizabeth. I don't. But the point I'm making is the understanding of the nature of Christ is crucial to this because if he's less than one or the other, it diminishes what he did. And where we're going here, I think, is it will diminish everything we do with him. What, what it's going to, I mean, my argument's going to be next week, is it sets up an enabling in us whether we want to admit it or not. Christ called us to share in his divine life. How are we doing it? When we enter into the Eucharist, do we really believe something divine is, it, is not in our... Here, Scripture. Here's a Protestant. Scripture. The rabbis in the old world. What did the rabbis do? The rabbis spent all of their life interpreting Scripture. What are the modern Protestants doing? The work of a, of a rabbi. Interpreting Scripture. What's a Catholic doing? If he's doing anything, he should be taking Christ into him. He's not in his head. He's in his whole body. He's a human... If anything, what Catholicism does is affirm our corporeal nature, the, the beauty of our bodies, and our communal nature with each other. That we're involved in the body of Christ. That's a radical different thing from being isolated privately in your head, reading... And I wanted to get this. We don't have time. Hamlet... <laughs> If you know anything about Hamlet, if those of you who were here when we did it, you know Hamlet's about 
Hamlet gets a private revelation from his from beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. Nothing in his life will make sense after it. Almost modern scholars to to a person will say it is the work of modernity. Why? And they don't even see it. They don't even see it because because he's privatized everything. Who can he turn to for help? He's absolutely isolated in his own world. Shakespeare knew exactly what he was doing. And and where did what, What's the university Hamlet comes from? Somebody name it who's read Hamlet. Wittenberg. Modern scholars don't have a clue. What's at the center of that book is what happens to an individual when his religious experience becomes absolutely privatized. Hamlet's going to kill, if you know the story, he gets a revelation from the ghost that says, you're, you're, my brother killed me, your uncle. Okay, Hamlet goes and kills the brother, and he says to a public, I killed him because he killed my father. And the public says to him, what the hell are you talking about? You? Because I had a private revelation. How's that going to go? <laughs> Imagine the problems that that man has to face in his life dealing with that experience. That's Shakespeare at this point. We do anything to diminish that fusion that taken on of a human and divine life. We strike right at the heart of what Christ did and asked us to participate in in everything we do. We got to stop because yes. we but I want to pick up the next. When we begin next week, I, I want to start with Milton tonight. We're not going to have time. When we be hold on before you. What I'd like to start with Nick tonight, next time we meet is this: What are the implications of these beliefs for the way we live out our lives? Is there a difference? If there are, what? And then I'm, we're going to start Milton, pretty directly. Okay? okay. Read the first two chapters of Paradise Lost. Okay. Um, it's good to see you all. Um, see you next week. Would anybody like to volunteer to bring something? I totally know I'm going to bring something. I can't put this in my name. Where's my wife? She disappeared. Okay, don't bring lemon bark because we already have. Bring something else. I know, that's a high okay. I'll, I'll say that next week. Please, because if you go to my church, my mother-in-law said, These are all, like all low-reformation. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, remind me, but I, if I don't, raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Yes. Can I give you this check for the twenty? I reason I get for five dollars. I screwed up with the one check. I should have written it out for, for twenty. It's good. Okay. Okay. So I, so I wrote it for. Yeah. It should cover the whole whole thing. Thank you very much, David. Great. I hope I you, hope, you, you hope know, that answered your you, question. You, you know, what, one of the problems in Catholicism. Yes is that the church teaches you 
what to do and what to think. It's how to, how to think and how to do. I couldn't agree more. See, this thing tonight, oh, it's, 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 tonight was a revelation. Thank you so much. What? <laughs> Wait, come here. I want because I you came up and said hello. I, I just I want to tell you. I, I, I meant to say this, but the groups do. I just sort of missed everybody. No, I mean we really did. You know, we, we got so close and seen every weekly. And going for three months, it was like deprivation. You're making me think on Mondays. <laughs> what? You're making me think on Mondays. Well, that's why you come back. No? Did you just make you think? Did it? What's the idea? Did it? Did it? Really? Truly. Truly. Oh, good. See, it's the how that we're missing the stuff that he talked about. We're going to Austin. Oh, good. You learned. You wrote your first one. The first one? The first one? Not our first but we'll, be, we'll, we'll make it up on the Friday morning. Okay. We'll be back. Uh, so I'll make sure things. Yeah. It never is. That's what I'm saying. Here it is. It never is. Accept it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> They don't teach you how to be a Patrick. Patrick. Yeah. 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 Ponytail Cowboys fan. I can't remember. Younger guy. But oh, I he's amazing. Yeah, I gotta get out of here. May I use? Okay, I'll be quick. But may I use that Paradise Lost translation? You can. Okay, I have to save the purple one. Yep. yep. Okay. And the only other thing. I just didn't recommend this because it's so scholarly. Did I miss these? Did you go over these before we went? Before I got here? No, no. I was about no. 20 minutes late. No, 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 I didn't. I put it up and we never went over it. Okay. There's so, a lot of things I didn't cover. They were still on business and I think people were still eating. I got here about 6.25. No later than 